All right, guys, we're going to be looking at the perfect servant, which is going to be in chapter 42, and then the unworthy servant, which is in chapters 43 and 44. So we're going to focus on the perfect servant. Now, we're not going to be reading these passages because they are very long passages for us to read. We're going to, we're doing a survey here, so we're going to just go through the material, help you to understand, answer any questions you have, maybe get your comments on some things. So the first one is, is Isaiah is going to introduce us to the perfect servant. So in verses 42, 1 through 17, we're going to see the servant and his work. Now, of course, we understand that he's going to be talking about Jesus. And I think this is very important for you and I to kind of grasp what he's supposed to do and how he acts because we have that tendency to forget that during the day, don't we? Especially if we're going through it or if we're facing some sort of circumstance, we automatically assume that God doesn't care or God isn't interested or God's busy or whatever. And when you see the nature of who Jesus is, that should help you, okay? It's very clearly communicating uh, the reality of who the Lord is and his Messiah and, and some things that we need to see there. So first thing I want you to notice is the Lord calls the readers to pay attention to his servant whom he delights in. All right, so first thing the prophet's going to mention is that God delights in his servant, which is his son. He takes delight in his son. And we've seen that, like we're going through the Gospel of John. We're going to see it, especially today when we look at the passage we're looking at today in John's Gospel in the 12th chapter, there are times when God the Father expresses that he is pleased with his son, okay? He takes delight in his son, all right? Now, the servant in these verses refers to the Messiah. So what he's going to describe here is the Messiah, or as we would say, the Christ. That is a Greek way of saying it, the Christ. And we know that to be who? Jesus, right? Okay, so let's take a look. And what it's describing about him here, all right? And some of these things, as it's mentioned, you're going to recognize that, yeah, that's what the Gospels say, right? Okay, so let's take a look. The servant has the Spirit of God on him and will bring justice to the nations. All right, now let's take that in two parts. He's saying here that the servant has the Spirit of God on him. Would you say that's true of Jesus from the Gospels? Yeah, why, why would we say that? What, what are some evidences from the Gospels that would reflect that the Spirit of God was upon him? Yes, at the baptism, that's right. At the baptism, remember when he was baptized, the, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit came upon him like a dove, okay? We also know that Jesus talked about that the Spirit was upon him, all right? Now, the aspect of bringing justice to the nations, is that a future aspect or is that something we've already seen? Future, yes. Yeah, he's going to, in the future, bring justice to the nations. All right, so let's remind ourselves, 
we're talking about this being written by Isaiah 700, I mean, at least several generations before the Babylonians will even come, all right? And several hundred years before Jesus even shows up. So everything that he's writing here is future projected. But we know, like with this first part, the Spirit of God was on him, we know that that was fulfilled where? In the Gospels, we see that. This aspect of bringing justice to the nations, that is yet future. Let's go on. He will be gentle and faithful to the weak and discouraged. He will be gentle and faithful to the weak and discouraged. Now, this is how he's going to be towards us. All right, let's stop there for a moment. How do you feel about that statement? How do you feel about that? Or is that too broad a question, George? All right, let me, let's, let, let me, let me probe deeper, okay? Because I'm like, okay, it's like, okay, George, I don't, I don't know if I want to answer how to answer what is our normal tendency when we go through something? When we go through a difficulty or we're facing troubling times or whatever, or even when we're facing the consequences of what we do, do we have a tendency to feel that God is gentle and faithful with us? Is that our first default thought about the Lord? Deanna is shaking her head no. What kind of thoughts do we have when we're in the midst of it? Think about it. He's writing to people who are facing the Assyrian crisis, who now have been told there's going to be a Babylonian crisis, so there's going to be troubles and problems. The prophet is telling them about a Messiah, and they're saying he's going to be gentle, and he's going to be faithful to the weak and discouraged. Okay? Is that what we normally think? No. How do we normally think about God in the midst of our problems? Okay, Gene says, why is this happening to me? We feel abandoned, okay? What else? Okay, so to, I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, Tim, you're saying we come to God, first of all, and ask why is this happening? So we think that God allowed it to happen. Why would we think that? Well, it's not just that we... Okay, that, that aspect. What kind of perception do we have of God if we're making that kind of statement? Why did you allow this to happen to me? What, what kind of perception of God do we have when we make those kind of statements? Yeah, he, he's, yeah he's, he's tough with us. Yeah, he, he's tough, okay? So what I want you to see is, is our natural human inclinations is to have a wrong concept of God. But here the prophet is coming and he's saying, especially to those who are going to be going through it, this servant is two things. Number one, gentle and faithful. Now, did Jesus say something similar to that? Anybody know? Yeah, Bruce's... Yes, gentle and lowly from Matthew. Come unto me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. 
So the reality here is this is the Messiah. Now, what can we take home from this reality? What, what, how does this speak to you? Maybe I should put it that way. How does this encourage you or discourage you? Hopefully it doesn't discourage you. How does this encourage you when we talk about you living your life out this week, everything that's happening, stuff happening in the world, stuff happening in the nation? How does this speak to you? Yes. Okay, that's good. So, all right, so you, you did say something really good at the beginning. It's only natural for us to ask why, okay? But we come to the reality, hey, you're going to be with me. You're going to be faithful to me. You're going to be gentle with me as I go through this. All right, that's good. Anybody else got a thought? It should be an encouragement to us. Do, do you understand? Because it's revealing not a hard-hearted God, but one who cares for you, right? We we shouldn't, but don't we think that way though? Maybe you don't, Bruce. Okay. Yeah, chastise you. Yeah, yeah, chastise you. Yeah. So, I, I don't think it's unnatural to go to God when you're weak and discouraged and, and talk to him like a, like a gentle and faithful friend. He's there to listen. Okay. But I yeah. think it would be like, it would be unusual for me to think, hey, I'm dealing with this shit in my life and I don't care, I'm dealing with it. And, you know, tough God, live with it. Um, I don't think it's unusual for me to expect God to go, nah, I'm not letting you. Okay, all right. Yeah, and I think those are two good points you're making there. I think one is a healthy point that, yeah, when I do wrong, God chastises me, but he's still going to deal with me. I recognize he's going to be gentle and lowly with me. I mean, or just. just. Yes, he's going to be just, but he's also, I don't need to have an attitude like he's out to get me. Okay. And then you also express the attitude of someone who doesn't believe. I don't care. Whatever, God. You know what I'm saying? But what I'm trying to say to you, maybe, maybe you don't agree with me, Bruce, is that there are a, a number of people who are believers, who do believe, but when stuff happens that's not right, and maybe it's their background or their experiences, maybe it's a lack of understanding of the compassion of God or the gentleness of God towards his children, they still think and maybe, maybe they've had a human father who was, you know what I'm saying, and uh, maybe they were told there's no such thing as an accident, somebody's always to blame. Do, do, do you understand what I'm saying? So they've got a wrong concept of God, and I think that a passage like this speaks to them to not think in God that way, do, do you understand what I'm saying, but to look at him as gentle and faithful. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? Because again, he's writing a people, he's going to talk about it here in a moment, who aren't doing right. Do, do you know what I'm saying? They're not doing right. 
and and they're going to go through it, but he's wanting to remind them, I'm gentle and lowly, but he's also going to express in the same passage what you said, his justice. And we're going to see it as well, okay? Everybody, everybody see what I'm saying? Okay. All right, let's go on. Because God is the creator, he will assist his servant. Now, the servant he's talking about here is the Messiah. So God will assist his servant. He will do whatever for his servant, okay, for this faithful servant. His servant will be a light to the Gentiles. Is that true? Yeah, we are here today because Jesus, the Messiah, was a light to the Gentiles. That means we're saved, right? Now, this would have blown their mind when they would have read it so many centuries ago. Why? The reality is their concept of Gentiles was there's no hope for them. They weren't God's chosen. They weren't his special people. We, they weren't the apple of his eye. They were to ultimately go to hell. Do you understand? They were the rejected. But here, this servant, the Messiah, will be a light to the Gentiles. Okay? Now, and the Lord works through his servant for his own glory. Now, do we see that in the gospel as well? Jesus, who is he doing it for in the gospel? When he does something in the gospel, who's it for? Uh, what did you say, Gene? Yeah, my father. He's doing it for, to glorify his father. In fact, let me go back to chapter 12 here in John where we were looking at. Here's what he says, verse 28, we're looking at it today, Father, glorify your name through him, okay? It's all for his glory. You know, one aspect of it here is, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified, verse 23. And the point is, is that all of this is to glorify the Father. Oh, verse 28, a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. That's the Father's reaction. So everything is for the glory that he does for the glory of the Father, all right? So he works through his servant for his own glory, all right? The reader is called to give praise and glory to the Lord. So when you and I read this about the Messiah... What he's saying here is, is this should elicit from us praise and glory to God. Thankfulness is, is an aspect of praise, right? It, it's, it's calling us to consider what this Messiah is going to do and praise him. Okay, so what are, what are some things that we should praise him for? As you think about it, you, especially as a Gentile, what should you praise him for when you read this passage about the Messiah? Okay, Bruce, everything. Okay. Okay. All right, there isn't anything that he has that isn't because of God. Okay. How about this basic one? This passage says that he will be a light to the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? Us. So isn't there something there to praise God about? Because if that wasn't true, would we have salvation? 
No. So just even the reality, God, that you would even take some time to consider me. Praise you. All right, what about the aspect, should we praise him for being gentle and faithful to the weak and discouraged? Yeah. God, thank you that you, you don't deal with me harshly in life. You deal with me gently. Yes, you might sometimes are firm, just like any parent would be, right? But you deal with me because you love me. So these are aspects that we're called to praise the Lord about. Now, next thing I want you to see here is this. Though it seems that he was silent for a long time, God will act in judgment. Okay? So it seems like sometimes God is silent, right? Would you agree with that even today? We sometimes think God is silent. Yeah, I mean, I, I think even like as we look at our culture, our world today, and all of what's going on, it's a natural question. Where are you, God? Isn't that a natural question? Why aren't we hearing from you? So even though he's silent for a long time, he's, he's giving us a point here that God will act in judgment. Now, here's the reality, though. He doesn't act according to your timing, right? It's always according to his timing, which is perfect, okay? Which is perfect. Now, here's what it says. His judgment will be painful for him. It'll be painful. Now, does that shock you? Yeah, okay. And I think it's interesting. Other portions of the scripture will talk about that God takes no delight in the destruction of the wicked. God doesn't sit around saying, yeah, I can't wait to get it for him to get it. We say things like that, right? Don't we say things like that? I can't wait till he gets it. You know what I'm saying? No, no, he doesn't. He takes no delight in the destruction of the wicked, period. God, his judgment will be painful for him. Do you, do you understand? So it's not something that he's wanting to do. Now, here's the other thing. He will give light to those who trust him and shame those who trust in idols. Now, idols, what is an idol? Anybody? It's not just, don't think in terms of just some figure, but what is an idol? Yeah, it's a false god. It's a substitute for God. Anything other than the true God. That's where devotion is given to. And so he's saying is that to those who, who trust in him, he will give them light. But to those who are trusting in something else, he will shame them. Now, when it, let me ask a question. When is the ultimate shaming going to take place? Yeah, Mike said a judgment. Now, is there any excuse to get out of judgment? Well, that's not an excuse, okay? Yeah, that's the only way out, okay? But at that point, when the great white throne judgment takes place, 
all excuses are meaningless, right? Because, all right, because here's the thing. This is how humanity is, okay? So, all right, let's say I have somebody down here. We'll call him Bill, all right? So Bill is down here. I catch Bill doing something, and I confront him. And Bill will say to me, well, you know, yeah, I know I got, but here's why I did that. And so he lists off this whole list of stuff. Now, it's up to me to determine from all this stuff that he's giving me what's accurate and not accurate, right? And so sometimes that's where lying takes place. A lot of times lying takes place there for self-protection. But it's still up to me to try to figure out exactly what Bill is saying is true or not true. And do I really truly ever comprehend the reasons why he did it? No. He just lists out his excuses. And he knows that. We know that about each other. That's why we're caught in this conundrum as human beings when we confront people. But that conundrum doesn't exist when you stand before the living God. And so when he asked you, Bill, why did you do this? He already knows why. And there are no excuses. None. Only shame. Do you know what I'm saying? Shame. People will be awfully ashamed when they appear before God. You know what I'm saying? I, I hear that oftentimes. That's the one thing with our culture and our society today is nobody has any shame anymore. You ever heard that statement? Nobody has any more shame about anything. Folks, that may be true. It's not exhibited as much, but there will be shame ultimately in the end because those who trust in idols, something other than God, will be shamed. So, the last part of chapter 42, verses 18 to 25, he's going to talk about their current condition. So this is where Israel is at when he's writing to them, okay? So the Lord points to the spiritual blindness of Israel. So he points out that they're spiritually blind. They can't see the truth. They can't see what God wants. They, they just can't see. And so with that, the Lord exalted his law and made it honorable. His law is what it is. He, even though they can't see it or want to understand it or whatever, they're blind to it, his law is his law and he honors it, okay? So Israel, who disregarded the law, is plundered and thrown in prison. So guess what happens to Israel because they disregarded the law? What did they experience? Yeah, capture. Punishment, right? We, as, take, being taken to the woodshed, or so to speak. Chastisement. An ultimate time out here, right? So they disregarded the law, so they were plundered, they lost everything, and they were thrown in prison. The Lord gave Israel over to be plundered. So he took away, for whatever that moment was, his special protection from them because they ignored him, disregarded him, 
And so he didn't help him. Think about this. Think about, do you think God gave him a sweet deal? If you think about what Moses gave to them when they were in the wilderness, when you look at read Deuteronomy, he tells them over and over, if you do these things, here's what will happen. You will be fruitful. That's not just that you'll have lots of kids, but you'll have great harvest. You'll have peace. Nobody's going to bother you. But the moment you turn away from me and you go after these other idols, you go after substitutes for me and you disregard what I'm telling you to do, I'm going to bring you trouble. I'm no longer going to give you that protection. I'm going to bring drought and famine, and I'm going to bring severity to the situation. I mean, he told them that from the beginning. Isn't that a sweet deal? So if you're getting that kind of sweet deal, what should you do? What he told you to do, right? Did they do that? No, they didn't. And so the Lord gave them over to be plundered. The Lord did this because Israel sinned against him. Israel sinned against him. That's why he did it. Folks, usually when terrible things happen in our lives, okay, a lot of times terrible things happen in our lives simply because we live in this world. But sometimes things happen in this world because they are the consequences and the chastisement of God. Salvation doesn't remove you from that. Okay? Sometimes we get this concept that I'm forgiven, I shouldn't have any problem, everything shows to be hunky-dory from here on out. God's never going to be mad at me again because he's forgiven and I've got this eternal card of forgiveness and I can do whatever I want. There are people who operate that way. The problem is, is that's not true. Yes, you're his child, but like any parent with a child, do you just let your child run loose? No, you don't. And when they need correcting, you what? You correct them. And he, the heavenly father, does. So the Lord did this because Israel had sinned against him. So the Lord poured out his anger on them. All right, now let me, let's stop for a moment because that sounds, that sounds harsh, okay? So when you hear a statement, he poured out his anger on him. What comes to your mind? What do you think when you, read that kind of, when you hear that kind of statement? What does that mean to you? Okay, it's scary, okay. Anybody else? Is it an emotional thing? Okay, Bruce said it. For God, no, it's, he said it, justice. It's a judicial anger. Okay, so there are a number of states in, in our country that still have the death penalty, Okay. I think Pennsylvania still has it, okay? They hardly ever use it, but they still have it. So there's a bunch of guys who are on there forever on death row, all right? Now, in, I can't, my background, I grew up in South Carolina where they have the death penalty, and they use it, okay? Now, I can remember before the whole lethal ejection thing, back then when I was a boy, it was a, the electric chair, okay? Now... When the state executes 
judgment on someone and sentences them to death, is that an emotional reaction of the state towards such criminal? Is it an emotional reaction? No, everybody, some of you are like, what do you mean an emotional reaction? No, it's a judicial act, right? So like, for instance, in South Carolina, they bring them into, in those days when they had the electric chair, they brought them from death row over into a special building where the chair was. And every, there's a process with that and a whole bunch of procedures. And they still have procedures and stuff with every state that executes judgment. All along the way, there is no emotional anger being expressed. This is because you no, no, but they're all professional about it or whatever until up until the time that the person is executed. Why? Because they're they are executing the judicial justice that's been quote poured out on that person. They're executing the anger, so to speak, of the state on that person for that act. Now we recognize that that anger is not an emotional anger, right? As you were saying, it's justice. It's, it's a judicial act. This is the same thing. When it says that God poured out his anger, that's his justice. Do you know what I'm saying? That's his justice on them. Because let's remember something. Does he love them? Yeah, but God's perfect. He's not like us. Sometimes you may discipline your children out of anger and have. We know that's not how we should do it. But God doesn't ever have that, oh, I did it out of my anger moment, out of my emotion. This is out of his judicial anger. And that's the point that he's making here. So the Lord poured out his judicial anger on them. Okay? his anger on him. So he's perfectly balanced here. Love, but yet his justice. Perfectly balanced. Now, we, we don't have that balance, okay? Now, let's go to 43 to 41. He's going to talk about the unworthy servant. So he talks about the worthy servant, who's the Messiah. He's going to talk about the unworthy servant. Now, who, who would that be? Well, we're going to find that out, okay? We're going to find that out. So the first thing, he points out to them is that he's going to say to them in verses 1 to 7, verse chapter 43, don't fear. He calls them not to fear. So the Lord calls Israel not to fear because he has redeemed them. So even though they're going through this, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Even in difficult times, Israel should not fear. Man, what a reminder for us. Number one crippling thing for you and I is what? Fear. Even when times get tough, don't be afraid. You have who? The Lord. You're his, all right? The Lord expresses the love he has for Israel and that they are precious. Hey, he loves you and you are precious to him. Ephesians chapter 2 describes you as his masterpiece. Okay? You are his masterpiece. They are not to fear because the Lord will regather them from afar. And, and this is especially 
meaningful to Israel because as they are being punished either by the Assyrians coming in or the Babylonians coming in and then later by the Romans coming in, guess what happened with them? They were spread where? Far apart. And he says, don't be afraid. The Lord's going to regather you. Okay, so it's a promise, okay? The Lord's going to be, so don't be afraid. Now, the Lord calls the nations to gather to hear a truth. So here's what the Lord is saying. Hey, he wants the nations to gather and hear this truth. So the Lord declares that Israel is his witness. So here God is saying, you want to know who I am and, and, and the witness to who I am? Look at Israel. Because they worship me, the true God. And the other nations didn't understand that. In fact, a lot of the other nations, we know this from history, thought the Jews were nuts. Crazy. Because they only worshipped one God. In fact, Zanacharib, when he came, remember we saw this, when he came and talked to the people in Jerusalem, a message for Hezekiah, said, why would God honor you? Because you tore down all of his high places. They didn't understand. God wanted all those high places because there's only one place to worship in Jerusalem. Where's that? The temple. Not on these high places. They didn't understand. So the Lord declares that Israel is his witness. Okay, so here's what happens now. We're going to see the source. We're going to look at the issue of deliverance. So the Lord declares that he will defeat the Babylonians for Israel's sake. All right, let's stop for a moment. Do you know when this was written? Remember I told you when this was written. When was this written? What was going on in Israel's world at this time when this was written? By who? The Assyrians, that's right. Were the Babylonians and even an issue? No. Now, if you were then, living then, and you were hearing the prophet, and he comes to you and declares that the Lord says he will defeat the Babylonians for his sake, how would you respond to that? Huh? Yes, yeah, think about that. So let's say we had somebody come in who, who has this gift of prophecy, and he comes in and says that God will deliver Kerwinsville from Venezuela in the future. God's going to do How would you react to that? Really? Yeah, yeah. You, Yes, they were real prophets, so you almost have to take, like, wait a minute, what do you mean? Like, right now we look at it, like, is Venezuela an issue? No. no. You know, but who's to say that they couldn't rise up in the future? This is the point. The point is, you're worried about the Assyrians, but there's a judgment that's coming, and I'll deliver you from them. Do you see what I'm saying? So it's, it's God projecting that. I just want you to understand why sometimes people don't respond to the prophets well. Because it just seems far-fetched. Right? 
If I said to you, we're going to be invaded by Venezuela, you'd be like, what have you been drinking, George? Is your green tea something wrong with it this morning? You know, do you know what I'm saying? That, that's not good. All right, let's go on. The Lord reminds Israel that he is the God of the Exodus. Now, why would that be important that they need to be reminded that he is the God of the Exodus? When the Exodus occurred, who was the world power at that time? Egypt. Yes, Bruce, Egypt. And what did God do to Egypt? Ten plagues, right? I mean, he pretty much destroyed them internally with the plagues, so much so that they told Israel, get out of here. And then the ultimate thing was what? The dividing of the sea and what? The destruction of Pharaoh's army. He's the same God. Now, why would that be an encouragement to the Jews at the time that no matter what's coming against us, our God is the God of the Exodus who provided us salvation and took care of our enemies, okay? Now, the Lord states that he will do a new thing to bring deliverance to Israel. A new thing to bring deliverance to Israel. Now, let's stop for a moment. If you think future, Jesus coming back, would you say that's a new thing? Or is that just kind of stuff happen all the time? Somebody cracks open the eastern sky, rides in on a horse, conquers the world. Do you see that all the time? Is that in the news lately? Maybe in a Marvel movie, but not, not, uh, not something we're used to seeing, right? This is the thing. He's going to do a new thing to bring deliverance. That's with his Messiah. Deliverance will not come because of Israel since they have wearied the Lord. So his point is, it isn't going to be because of Israel that he's doing this, because they've, they've, been, they've rather wearied him. What do you mean they're not doing it? Why else is he doing it? He's doing it for his sake. For his sake. For the covenant that he made with who? Abraham. The covenant that he made with Isaac. The covenant that he made with Jacob. The covenant that reestablished with Moses. The covenant that he did with David. And all of those covenants, who were those covenants based on? Were they based on Israel? No, they were based on who? God. And so God says, I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to do this. It's not because of you, because, man, you're wearying me. It's because of God, I'm doing this because I said that I would do this. So deliverance will come to Israel, not be, will not come because of Israel, but be, since they have wearied the Lord. The Lord proclaims that he is the one who forgives sin for his sake. Okay, so when he forgives you, why does he forgive you? Is it for you? Yeah, for his sake. Not for you. Now we benefit from that, right? But is it for us that he's doing it? No, it's for his sake, all right? Even though he will forgive Israel, he still needed to punish them for their sin. They still had to go through what they needed to go through, even though he forgives them. 
And I think that's a reality that we need to see. So everybody understands, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, are you forgiven? Does that mean you won't ever experience consequences? No, you still experience the consequences, right? You know, I, I've, I've said this sometimes. So let's say I lose it, okay? So, um, and I go uh, get to the beer distributor and get a case and uh, go home and uh, tie one on that evening. And for some reason, I decide I want to go to Walmart at 1 o'clock in the morning while I'm inebriated. And I drive out there and whatever, I end up getting in a wreck. And in the wreck, I rip off my arm. Now, after I get out of the hospital and have to face the humiliation that Pastor George tied one on and then he got into an accident and lost his arm, is there forgiveness for George? Does that forgiveness give me back my arm? Does it give me back my reputation? Does it give me back my car? All those things are what? consequences right so even though he forgave Israel they're still needing he still needed to punish them it's our punishment now do you understand what I'm saying it's our punishment now in fact that point is made in Corinthians that we are judged now now rather than later our judgment for our sin is now even though we're forgiven but that forgiveness is ultimately so that we can go to be with him, right? So the Lord, the Lord renews his call to Israel to not fear because he will help them. Well, it sounds like he's kind of harsh there, George. He's going to let them go through this. Yeah, but he still says, I'm going to help you. You have to go through what you have to go through, but I'm going to help you. You know, as I'm getting older, I, I'm, I'm, I'm learning these lessons that sometimes you have to allow your children to fail in order for them to what? Learn lessons, right? Because if you're always constantly rescuing them, they're not learning anything, right? And so sometimes, you know what? He's saying, don't be afraid. I'll still be there, and I still will be there, but I need to allow them to what? Go through it. And this is the way the Lord is, okay? This is the way the Lord is. So the Lord will revive Israel both physically and spiritually. Now why, now, why physically? Why that promise? Well, what that means is, is they'll, once again, be another nation. They'll have their cities back. They'll have their crops back. You know, they'll, they'll again produce and be fruitful and multiply as a people. Spiritually, they will be restored or revived. What? Because they will, once again, what? Worship the Lord. Okay? The true God. 